scripture this morning, um, the Good Samaritan, which tells of two religions that have little to do with one another. One reaches across to help the other. We're going to hear from JP, wilderness ranger, university professor, husband, father, brother, son, and adventurer. Thanks. Good morning, everybody. During today's sermon, I will share four life lessons that shape my beliefs, my personal understandings of love and forgiveness. And I'll be sharing four different specific lessons I've learned. Number one, I'm not exactly sure when it started, but it may have been one day after talking to my mother. I've never been the same since that early conversation. In my mother's words, she said, I was staying with my grandmother, and she saw a family of Indians walking by the cabin. And she ordered me to take a fresh loaf of bread 
and to place it on the porch. She replied, my gosh, why are we doing that? She said, because we are Indians too. She also said many years ago, my great-great-grandfather, a French-Canadian traveler, married a Blackfeet Indian woman up in the North Country, Saskatchewan. They had children together, and we are part of that family. My immediate response was, oh my gosh, when I play Indians in the future, am I going to have to be the Indian? <laughs> well, so to that day, I learned I was more than I thought. I mean, I was different from my friends. I was part Indian. It was years later, I was asked by the Swan Valley School principal, where I'm from, to lead an educational effort on Indigenous Peoples Day. One of my dear friends, Susan, is half white and half Salish. While in her class, I asked the students what they thought of when I said Native Americans. Several students immediately yelled, they're lazy, they don't work, they're drunk all the time, and they poach wildlife in the Swan Valley. I happened to look over at my friend. She had tears running down her face. Her little innocent fourth graders had spoken. Finishing up the presentation, I asked Susan if she wanted to add anything. She started by stating, my father is from Ronan, and he is full blood Salish. My mother from Missoula is full blood Irish. The students looked shocked by the revelation. One little girl raised her hand and said, with permission, stated that her family had Indian friends in the Mission Valley. And she said, I don't care what anybody says, I love you, Susan, no matter what. Lesson two. Right after 9-11, I had tickets to travel abroad to a predominantly Muslim country to conduct research. All of us researchers were both leery of getting on a flight and traveling to a Muslim country. It immediately hit home how raw the emotions were when I witnessed a man in a turban being assaulted by a young white man. While working as a research scientist in Malaysia, I was given another opportunity to expand my cultural horizons. My first morning in Kuala Lumpur, I was wakened to the echoes of the Muslim morning prayer, which echoed through the canyons for miles and miles. As I stood on the balcony, I was totally overwhelmed by how loud and powerful the chanting was. I'd never experienced anything like that before. Over the next few weeks, I was exposed to many Muslim people who shattered my images of what I thought Muslim people were. Instead of finding people who had pictured as the bombers of the World Trade Center, I found the most loving people I've ever seen in all my world travels. Each person I met would wave and touch their hands to their hearts welcomed me with an open and loving spirit. I was also reminded due to cultural differences, do not shake hands or often shake hands with a woman. While some men did extend their hands, others gestured by just crossing their chest with their, head, with their hands. While each meal was treated as a celebration of life, I noticed over time that there was quite a separation, a hierarchical separation, if you will, between us American field researchers and the Muslim people who were on the far end of the table. 
It all changed one afternoon when I decided to leave my fellow Americans and go to the far end of the table and sit with them. All the guys were Muslim and didn't speak English. While our guide was Chinese and spoke six languages, I realized that I needed to be with a different group. <laughs> so, not knowing what to say, I reached into my wallet, and I always carried pictures of my extended family, my kids, my grandkids, and laid them all out on the table. And they followed suit, all the guys I was with, all pulled their wallets out, spread their families out. And they were laughing and poking and putting their finger on it. And before long, I felt like, you know, I connected with the family in a different way. From that point on, there was a fellowship that had begun. It essentially, for me personally, moved from hatred to fear to love. And it seemed quite like a quantum leap, but in retrospect, love is everywhere if you look for it. Although it may be difficult in a different shade and sometimes hard to see, I was enthralled once again to discover that the colors of love often pre prove to be translucent. If we can just take the time to love. Lesson number three. While working as a wilderness ranger in the Mission Mountains Wilderness for roughly 20 years, I kept a daily journal and estimated that I had talked to 40,000 people during this period. What stood out to me is I would say that they were, they were you know, uh, white folks from Missoula, or that they were, you know, maybe Hispanic or uh, African American. Well, over those 40,000 people, I had eight people of color that I talked to. And so I always wondered, well, why don't people of color, color come to wilderness areas or to national parks? It's because they are afraid of the possibility of their family experiencing some level of racism. That is, the goal of my research was to better understand how people respond to on-site conditions in wilderness that is crowding, numbers of other people they may see, the impacts to the area, as well as the other kinds of people that they have the opportunity to, to spend time with. In my research, I primarily did research with American Indians and African Americans. And in a nutshell, what I found was that they fear many things that they don't know. And just the fact that they could happen, they just said, we'll just stay at home or go to a place where we feel safe. In order to better understand African Americans, I took a professor job at an HBCU in South Carolina where I met my wonderful wife, Jane. It's a historically black college and university where all the students are black. Coming from a family that discriminated against people based on their race, predominantly black, I knew the first hurdle would be for me to address my own personal biases. I knew better than to show up at a black college and say, hey, I don't see color. Rather, instead, I openly stated that, unfortunately, I come from a family that is racist. I learned long ago that the honesty trumps innocence and ignorance every time. However, at the time, I did share another family story with my students. On my father's side, there was a glimmer of hope and, and a bridge of chasm at the same time. Years ago, one of my sisters conducted a background of the Flood family. No, not using Ancestry.com way before then. While she found out most of my family had settled in the north, one family member had moved to Tennessee. They were farmers. 
This was also during the time of the Civil War and the under peak of the Underground Railroad. My sister found pictures of the family, and there was a label underneath the family that said, Regional Leaders in Harboring Escaping Black Slaves. Also, the picture she found in a local newspaper showed the family of four hanging from a tree with the caption, Black Slave Lovers Paid the Ultimate Price. Although I was openly seeking an aha moment not doing that, by sharing this information, it seems now that my students and I share a common bond of loss. The floodgates open for now, and families, each of our families, paid an ultimate price. Well, it took some time to pull back and cover of emotions and truth and honesty, and it did happen in about two years. I fell in love with my students, and they with me. Based on those experiences and many more, I developed a bond that has lasted a lifetime. Many of them, my, many of them are on Facebook with me, and now I can see their, their children growing up. I don't think we ever totally get over what we learned as children, but knowing stuff and being aware of things allows us to always be open to the different colors of love. After my father passed, I had a conversation with my mother, and she said, you're not going to believe it, but when, you're Marilyn, when Marilyn's daughter come and stayed with us for a couple days, she brought her daughter. She was a black child. And initially, my father was shocked. Then grabbed the baby, kissed her cheeks, threw up her and threw her in the air, and they had a grand time. My mom said, your father, unbelievably, never said another bad thing about blacks the rest of his life. Maybe a school teacher friend of mine was right when he said, when we're all of one family, racism will be a thing of the past and love will win. I am often asked, what did you learn from your research to foster the people of color and get them to visit, our, visit and support our parks in the wilderness areas? I learned that when people of color can enter parks and see that the people that are working there, i.e. managing them, look like them, they'll feel welcome and safe. The last lesson, lesson number four. Because so many of my memories of Alaska are very emotional for me, I often find it difficult to share some of the stories of my time spent in the Alaskan bush country. I was there in the 70s and the beginning of the 80s while society was rapidly changing. I found myself living in a small village in Holy Cross, Alaska, on the Yukon River, roughly 300 miles west air miles from Anchorage. There where I live, the Yukon is roughly three miles wide. Back in those days, villages allowed drinking and most afternoons began with what was called the Whiskey and Pampers Run out of Anchorage. Each small Cessna plane that landed was met by thirsty onlookers who were ready to drop their oil revenue monies for a bottle of R&R. I still envision those close friends of mine who were drunk, crawling through the mud with mud in their hair. They were falling down, crawling, and during breakup, especially, they would purchase their last dollar, use their last dollar to purchase the next bottle that when the plane landed. Well, the only thing I can say is thank God for dog mission. For me, it was a saving grace. The worst year I ever had was I saw the villagers begin drinking and, at Christmas and didn't stop until Easter. So dog mushing provided me an escape. I ran 12 dogs. I ran up and down the Yukon and across the Cuscoe River. 
I worked at the time as a regional maintenance director for the Iditarod Area School District and helped with the Iditarod dog sled race. Also, I spent my winters running up snowmobile trails in my tennis shoes in a way to get some level of sanity on snowmobile trails between the villages that were roughly about 25 miles apart. After spending nearly three years in the bush, I had developed some really close friends, loving friends, that are still friends of mine today. With that, we were invited, my wife and I were invited to a dinner party. And they were also the local village store owners. Jim was white, Betty, his wife, was native. They met us at the door and introduced us to the other dinner guest, Lucy Turner, an Athabascan woman, who by now, yeah, we knew her, but not very well. While drinking wine and eating smoked salmon strips, we enjoyed a light conversation. After a great salmon dinner and sharing some stories, they asked me, well, what about Montana? Of course, I had to share my Montana stories. And then Lucy asked me, well, you were raised Catholic, do you still attend? I said, no, not often, but I do sometimes when I visit my mom and dad, during, especially during the holidays. I then asked Lucy the same question. Lucy, how about you? She said, yes, but that hasn't always been the case. The room went silent and all the attention was on Lucy. As she began to share her story, I could see Jim and Betty off to my side were very moving in a chair and uneasy. She asked, do you want to hear my story? I said, yes, of course, yes. She started by sharing that she was very young. She remembers living along the Yukon River with extended family members and they refer to it now as fish camp. But in historical significance was between 1869 and 1960, hundreds of thousands of Native American children were removed from their homes and families and placed in boarding schools operated by the federal government and by churches. The US government said that all Native children must attend public school. So life is loosely new, changed drastically when the local Catholic Jesuits traveled up and down the Yukon and gathered up about 400 of her friends, the Native American children, and housed them in a four-story school located in Holy Cross where they lived, went to school, and attended daily mass. Years went by and everyone in the village knew that the Catholic Church was facing some financial troubles and difficulties. So one spring day after breakup when the ice breaks off the Yukon, the local priest brought everybody together and he said, hey, I want to let everybody know that the church is facing some really tough financial problems, but I have a solution. He pointed his discussion toward the local fishermen who are all standing together and said, whoever donates the most money this year from the salmon run will have their choice of any of the young girls from the school to be their bride. Two months later, the priest brought everyone back together and shared with the crowd, there's good news. John Turner has given $3,000 to the church and he has his choice of any of the girls to be his bride. The priest lined up 40 12 to 15 year old girls and John quickly reached out and said, I want Lucy. That's the one I want. Lucy said, I was very frightened and scared, but no one protested and we were immediately married. 
She said I was raped repeatedly those early years, and she never could love him, even after she gave birth to 17 of his children. They were married 35 years until the final, she finally decided to file for divorce. I followed up with a question. I said, Lucy, with all this information, you still attend the Catholic Church? She said, yes. Well, I, well, I will never forget what happened to me over those many years. I knew that hatred that I had deep in my heart was preventing me from loving myself or anyone else for that matter. I often see my ex-husband in the village and we share stories about our family, but I try to stay away from him as much as I can. But your faith, I said, what about your faith? He said, my faith, JP, is that I love Jesus and he has always been He's never been more stronger than he is right now in my life. Jesus got me through the hard times and taught me to forgive. Hate that strong can be only rotting your soul and leaving you empty and feeling all alone. No, I attend daily mass every morning. Once again, I am reminded, I personally am reminded of such a horrific story of the many colors of forgiveness as well as love. A side note, just to that story, it was, it was just a few years later, that the entire village voted unanimously to level the structurally sound four-story building that housed the children. I wouldn't share that story except for I was right there and heard from the person directly. So it was it was it forever changed my life. Reflecting on Jean, my wonderful wife Jane, the parable of the Good Samaritan, I selected this today because. When I reflect upon the scripture that I chose to highlight the parable because the Good Samaritan reflects, I think, the way we all need to be. On a number of occasions, it became very apparent to Jesus, wanting to highlight the importance of helping all people, no matter who they were, what they looked like, or where they came from. Be aware of one's bigotry and discrimination based on color, race, or their wealth. Furthermore, Jesus emphasized that he it took an outsider sometimes, somebody who's not from that area, to render need and care and love, to take care of that. So, love yourself, love your neighbor. And this will all allow us all to live better and live the life we love. At every turn in my life, I have faced many challenges and choices. I have always chosen to respond with kindness and love. In summary, so at least from my life experiences, there are many colors of love, all different, all encompassing, and all possess different meanings. Having myriad experiences of being exposed to so many different cultures have enhanced my beliefs and opened my heart to a colorful love that accepts all people, all strengths, and all their differences. Yes, I fervently believe that these examples I shared today have fostered my understanding of life while carrying personal meaning for me about love and especially about acceptance, forgiveness, in order to experience the many colors of love. I close with a story about a neighbor of mine. While teaching at East Carolina University most of my career, I bicycled back and forth to work. I came home one day and I saw Pearl, my neighbor, a long-time lifelong South Carolinian, working on her flowers. I scooted up next to her and I said, I said, hey, good afternoon, Pearl. She goes, oh, Dr. Fudge, so good to see you. 
And she says, uh, you know, I just want to tell you how nice it is that you let your son Max play with colored boys. And I said, geez, girl, I didn't know they were colored. <laughs> she responded with a big smile. Oh, Dr. Blood, you are so funny. As I cycled back over to my driveway, I reflected on the fact that what we do often has a greater impact than what we say. Let it be so. Amen. want to thank Advance, my dear friend Lila, for singing a special song today. So, uh, awesome. Thank you, sweetheart. I have no idea what uh, Katie was going to speak about, but I think the song that I chose to follow him is very appropriate. Thank you. 